Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the last part of our summer series. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Come on, if Jesus has ever, ever been good to you, can you just give him a praise in this place? Come on. I need to, I need to get us to that place uh, because I have an opening passage of Scripture it's going to kind of bring us down. So might as well start up for a, for a moment. Um, but don't worry. It's going to get better by the end. You just got to stick with me. How many guys know sometimes you just got to wait till the end? Come on, there's a word in there. Sometimes you give up too early. Okay. Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be. This is written by a man named Solomon, king of Israel. Verse 1, he said, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. We're skipping ahead to verse 9. Solomon says, I became greater, far greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had achieved through my toil, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. I told you, not the most encouraging scripture, but I want to speak today. Um, on the topic of disordered love, disordered love. Come on, let's give Jesus praise one more time in this place. You guys can find a seat this morning. So glad that you could be here today uh, once again. Come on, can we get up for the worship team today? Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us uh, so well. Uh, before we get started, I just got to let you guys know two things. Number one, uh, Next weekend, next Sunday, is our last Sunday at one service. September 10th, we're moving to two services. Come on, somebody. 9 a.m. for the early birds. Early bird catches the worm. And 11 a.m. for those of you guys that are not as holy and sanctified. That's starting in two weeks. You guys all got that? So you come here at 10 a.m. in two weeks, it's going to be real awkward. Second thing, Tuesday night, this week, we have our small group, Kingdom Cruise, leaders training. So if you are interested in leading a group in the next year, come out this Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, right here at the church. Now, this next month, we have so much going on. So if you are not on our email list yet, after service today, fill out a connect card because we don't want anyone to miss all that's happening this week. Month. Sound good? Does that sound good? All right, amazing. So uh, let's get into the word today. Um, I want to let you guys know something. Uh, we are in the midst of one of the greatest food shortages uh, that we have seen, at least here in St. Albert. Uh, you guys may or may not know this, but um, the hot sauce known as sriracha is currently on a shortage. Is there any Sriracha fans in the building today? 
Wow, we got a holy church here this morning. Uh, so you guys <laughs> probably know this, uh, but there is a great sriracha shortage. Now, to be specific, the bottle that is on shortage is called Hoi Fung Sriracha. And it's, uh, excuse my whatever language that is. Excuse it. I'm not even going to pretend I know what that is. But it's the one with the rooster on it and the green bottle. So uh, there's a great shortage. Did you guys know this? And so, uh, for those of you guys that don't know what sriracha is, it's just, it's a hot sauce. It's a red hot sauce. And now, generally, like, if you go to an Asian restaurant, uh, it's usually on the table, kind of like how Denny's has ketchup on the table. Uh, Asian restaurants have sriracha on the table. Now, my family, or at least my wife and I in specific, we put sriracha on everything. Like, I put it on my eggs, I put it on steak, I put it on chicken, I, like, everything. And we become doubly aware of how much we put sriracha on our stuff, especially during this shortage. Now, I'm not one that wants to give up easily, so I've been searching high and low to find sriracha anywhere. I've gone to grocery stores, I've gone to convenience stores, I've gone everywhere. No luck so far. So what I did is I went to the interwebs. And I looked online to see if I could find a bottle of sriracha. And so I made my way to Amazon. And lo and behold, I found that there were people on Amazon selling sriracha. Only issue is that these are secondhand sellers. And so these are people that understand the simple principle of supply and demand. And so normally, I think a bottle of sriracha is like $3.99. Something in that range. I found it on Amazon for $50. Now, I got my water bottle up here. The sriracha is, is like smaller than this for 50 bucks. Now, naturally, I have to go to the reviews to see if it's legit before I, I, I do anything. Now, I'll let you guys know, I haven't bought any. <laughs> Nevertheless, went to the reviews to see it was legit and... All the reviews, send in pictures, it's legit. But there was one review by my fellow countryman, Navjeet, that caught my attention and brings me back to this sriracha. This is, this is his review. He labeled it in Sriracha We Trust. He said this, he said, he said, I love sriracha. It's unfortunate about the shortage and the cost but you can't put a price on happiness. <laughs> this is what he said, and these are the words that haunt me. He said, sooner or later, everybody pays the piper. <laughs> and every time I see that bottle of sriracha, I think to myself, today's the day I'm gonna pay the piper. Every time I buy the knockoff versions from the store, anyone bought the knockoff srirachas? Come on. Every single time I taste it, I feel like today's the day I pay the piper. Now, as I said, I have not paid $50 for sriracha yet. And it's not because I have great self-control. It's not because I, I cease to love sriracha hot sauce. It's because every single time I open my Amazon account, I see my previous purchase, which I know is also going to be my next purchase, which are golf balls. And I've done some simple math, and I can pretty much buy two packs of golf balls 
for, the, for one case or one bottle of sriracha. And so every single time I'm tempted to buy the sriracha, I look to the golf balls. Because you need to understand something. If there's one thing I love more than sriracha, it's golf. And so what keeps my life in order is not that I love sriracha less, I just love golf more. You guys following? And so I've realized something about life. One of the reasons our life get messed up is not because we don't have priorities. One of the reasons we get stuck in ish sometimes is because we have the wrong priorities. And when I talk about wrong priorities, what I mean is this. It's oftentimes that we love the wrong things more than we love the right things. Most of us don't realize our issue in life, in life isn't that we don't love enough. It's that oftentimes we just love the wrong things more than we love the right things. I'm going to let you know something. You can love shopping. But if you love shopping more than you love paying your bills, you're probably going to be in a little bit of disorder. Is that making sense? Now, ultimately, I love golf more than sriracha, and that keeps me on the straight and narrow. But if I love golf more than my family, I'm going to have some issues. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about what is called disordered love. Now, this idea of disordered love does not actually come from me, but it comes from an ancient uh, Christian, an early church father named Augustine. Now, some of you guys may know who Augustine is. He wrote a famous book called Confessions. He was an early church father. But he had this idea about disordered love. And what he says is this. He says, the essence of sin. What is sin? It's a big word. He said, sin is just disordered love. What is disordered love? Disordered love means that we often love less important things more and more important things less than we ought to. And this wrong prioritization leads to unhappiness and disorder in our lives. Does that make sense? A disordered love is loving the wrong things more than the right things. So take it all together. The key to living an unsatisfying life is simply love the wrong things. Now, question is this, how do I know What's right? How do I know what's the right thing to love? Now, I think one of the beauties of Scripture is that the Scriptures give us this overarching picture, not just what it looks like to love the right things, but it also shows us, I think, humanity and the places that we will go that often end up causing us to love the wrong things. And so what I want to do today is I want to help us to prioritize or perhaps reprioritize the loves in our life. Now, I think this is a timely message as we enter into September. Because I know for a lot of us, even more than January, September feels like a new year, right? We got school, some of us work ramps up, whatever it is. And I just want to say, if maybe last year didn't go the way you want it to go, maybe you didn't feel the peace, maybe you didn't feel the contentment that you wanted to feel last year, I think that today can be a timely message uh, because I think that when we begin to reorder our love, um, our life can begin to change. Does that make sense? So that's where I want to go today, and I'm going to look at two people. I want to look at Jesus because that's always a good place to look, and then I want to look at a man named Solomon. 
We're going to look at Jesus and Solomon, and we're going to have two pictures. And what we're going to see is Solomon orders his love probably closer to our culture uh, than anything. And we're going, to, we're going to dive into that. So I want to start with Jesus. Matthew 22. We're going to look at an ordered life here. This is what he says. Uh, <clears throat> he's getting tested in this moment uh, by, by a Pharisee. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is kind of like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, when, when he says hang on these two, like he's talking about like, okay, the, the Old Testament, I don't have a Bible up here, but like it's big. The law and the prophets. Jesus says everything hangs, all, like these, his huge book. Can I, can I have that Bible for a second? I need a spiritual man like, like Josh. I'll just take one. I don't need to give it up for Josh. Let me just get this right here. This is, this is a small Bible too. He's not that spiritual. Um, <laughs> there we go. This is the Old Testament. Old Testament. That's a lot. Any of you guys have read the Old Testament before? I'm not trying to test anyone, but um, Jesus says, the law and the, everything in here hangs on this idea. Love God, love your neighbor. Do you want, you want this back? I just want, I just want to visualize. I can keep it up or you want it? You want it. You're going to need it. So, point is this. What does an ordered life look like? I can know everything in that Old Testament. I can know everything in the New Testament. But if I don't love God and I don't love people... My life is out of order. So what is the key to an ordered life? Jesus says it like this, pretty simple. Number one, love God. Number two, love people. Now to love God, what does that mean? Ultimately, it means to serve him, to devote yourself to him, to build your life on him. He is the foundation of my life. Then he says next, he says love people. Well, what does that mean? It means value people, value your family, value your friends, value people above possession, value people above status, value people above even ourselves. He says, when your life is ordered like this, you will live a satisfying life. This is important because you can come close. You can love people, then love God. So I love my wife, I love my kids. But ultimately, if those are number one, your life is still out of order. And so what we're trying to do is have an ordered life. And uh, what I want to do today, because I think that if we're being honest, can, can I put the ordered life back up there for a second, Carol? Uh, if you're a Christian in this room, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you probably want to live like this. Like, yeah, that's how I want to order my life. Like, I want to love God. I want to love people. But if we're honest, can we be honest for, for a moment this morning? There are times when, like, I just kind of want to love me first. You ever been there? Like, I want to love people, but this person always kind of ticks me off. Like, I want to follow God. I want to love God. But, uh, like, the club's calling this weekend. Come on, somebody. Like, I want to, but I, I don't always. And so I have, I have a really simple thesis this morning. It's simply this. Disordered love leads to a disordered life. When my love is out of order, my life will be out of order. So ultimately, the issue isn't that I love things. 
it's okay to love other things. I think God has given us a great capacity to love. The question is, are the things that I love in their proper order? So that's the ideal. Jesus gives us the ideal, and we'll hop back to that um, a little bit later. But what I want to do is I want to hop um, in the Bible back to the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. And why I want to do this is because I think that uh, the character we're going to look at today, Solomon, um, he goes through a journey that I think is, is not dissimilar to what many of us go through, specifically those of us that live here in the West, in Canada. And so I'll give you a little context. Solomon at this time, is the most successful king in the history of Israel. Solomon is the son of David, like David, the one that fought Goliath. Solomon's his son, and Solomon takes the kingdom of Israel to levels it never saw before and ultimately never sees again. He was the most successful king. The Bible says that when Solomon was the king, gold lost its value because he had so much. Just imagine that. Like dudes bawling out. And so Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And to be honest, it's not a very encouraging book. Because what he does is he kind of surveys his life. It's his introspection of his whole life. He looks back on all that he has done. And Solomon has this simple conclusion. Life is meaningless. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes starts. Meaningless, meaningless. Now, being the Bible, you think that like it's uplifting and somehow going to be a great message. It's going to end better. You want to know how Solomon ends his book? Meaningless, meaningless. Life is, it's, and it's funny, you got to read it because if you read it, you'll notice that an editor comes in and adds their own beginning and their own conclusion. Because somewhere along the line, someone reads it and they're like, man, this doesn't sound very Bible-like. We can't end on meaningless. Let's add, like, um, and love God. Uh, keep his commandments. Fear, you'll be good. Go read it. I'm not making it up. There's an editor's note at the end. So, but the point is this, and what I want us to see is the reason that Solomon says this is because Solomon essentially tries to experience everything under the sun in order that one of those things might bring his life meaning one of those things might bring his life purpose. And so what I want to do is I want to go through it um, because although this book may not be uplifting, I think it's real. And sometimes we don't always need uplifting, sometimes we need real. And the book of Ecclesiastes, if one thing, is real. So in Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon decides, you know what, I'm going to look for purpose in wisdom. So he searches out wisdom, he says, you know what, it's meaningless, Let's try something else. And so this is where we pick it up, Ecclesiastes 2. He says to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So why I want to park here today is because what Solomon does is what I think is kind of a cultural norm today. He says to himself, well, you know what? The ultimate way that I am going to find purpose and meaning is through pleasure. I'm going to try to just seek all the good that I can and see if that gives my life meaning. Now, this idea and this kind of way of life that Solomon picks up here is what we today call hedonism. Can you guys say hedonism? Apparently not. Let's try it again. Hedonism. There we go. Pretty good. Now, it seems like a really big word, but hedonism simply means this. It is the ethical theory 
that pleasure and satisfaction of our desire is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. Now, you may have heard this said before, but Canada oftentimes, or even North America or the West, we're called a hedonistic culture. And all it means when we say that our culture is a hedonistic culture is that we may not believe in a God per se, but if there was a God, his name is pleasure. And the ultimate thing that all of us must do is we must serve that which gives us pleasure. The only way to live a good life is to curb, not to curb yourself, and to follow after the things that give you pleasure. Whatever that may be, that is the highest good. And so for the typical Canadian, their, their, their moral compass is something to the extent of like, hey, you can do you, I'm going to do me, but don't tell me not to do anything that might inhabit my pleasure. Because that is what is ultimately good. I, I love you. Hey, listen, bro. You do you. I love your Sunday morning church thing. I get it. But just don't tell me what to do. You guys, you guys been there? Right? Because pleasure in a hedonistic culture is ultimate. Now, for Solomon, he basically says, you know what? I'm looking for meaning in life. So I'm going to just, I'm going to go to pleasure. I'm going to deny myself nothing that is bad, good, or otherwise. And I'm going to try to see if that helps. So if we go back to the ordered life, what is the ordered life? Jesus says, love God, love people. So a disordered life, and this is one that I think many of us find ourselves in here in the West, would be ultimately, number one, we say love pleasure. Love pleasure. Right? Now, you don't have to agree or disagree with me. That's okay. I just take my cues from Jesus. So when Jesus says an ordered life is one that loves God and loves people, then I say a disordered life is one that ultimately puts anything above that, but in this case, it is the love of pleasure. Now, I didn't want to trigger anyone this morning, but I really wanted to put on that list love yourself. But I knew that wouldn't go well because y'all don't like when I talk about that one. But ultimately, and what, when I, my thing when I talk about loving yourself is many times what we mean is that I just come first. My needs come first, my wants come first, my desires come first, my pleasures come first. And ultimately, if that is the life that we are going to live, I would argue that we are going to live a disordered life. A life that is built on pleasure is a disordered life. So Solomon, because you're like, Harrison, well, what does a life built on pleasure look like? Thankfully for us, Solomon does everything you can possibly think of. So we'll read it, and we'll see if maybe you guys have been there before. So Ecclesiastes 2, verse 3, Solomon says, uh, I tried cheering myself with wine. Anyone ever been there? It's like, life isn't going. I'm just, let's, let's hit the bottle. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. Solomon's also low-key kind of like dunking on people here. He's like, I've seen these idiots before drinking, uh, so I tried it. I wanted to see what these common folks do. <laughs> the Bible's not boring. You're boring. 
Verse 4, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herd and flock than anyone in Jerusalem before me. We get it, Solomon. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasures of kings and provinces. I had male and female female singers. I had Taylor Swift and Bruno Mars. Come on, somebody. And a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far. This guy is not humble than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So literally, it's like I had it all. I did it all. I experienced it all. And at the end of it, he's like, I just felt empty. The Hebrew word uh, is this word for vapor. My life felt like vapor. Here today, God, I just, you guys ever been there? You guys ever been to the place where like you got the thing that you wanted that you thought was the next thing that was gonna bring you happiness? And it was good for a few days, but then as time went on, you realize like I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. You guys ever been there? It's like you had that car, it was in your mind for a long time, like, ooh, when I finally get that car. And then you have it, and then you realize on the Anthony Hende, no matter what the car is, I can still only go 109. <laughs> you guys ever been there? For some of us, maybe it was a job. Your life was in this kind of, this, this dissatisfaction spiral, and you told yourself, if I just get this job, then my life will be better. And then you got the job and you realize nothing, nothing changed. You guys ever been there? It's, it's funny. Um, and, and let, let, me, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with cars, jobs, or anything of the such. The issue is, we as people have a tendency to take good things and turn them into gods. And when we take the good things and make them gods, we will never be satisfied. It's funny, you know, generally speaking, unless you have the privilege of building your dream home, um, you talk to people who are homeowners, and one of the things that uh, you'll hear from homeowners is that most homeowners have like a list of things that they're gonna do in their house, right? You, you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like one day I'm gonna renovate the kitchen, one day I'm gonna renovate the bathroom, one day I'm gonna like X, Y, Z. Like we, we have a list, come on somebody. Anyone have a list in this place? Like one day I'm gonna do this. And um, it's funny, cause I, I was just thinking about some advice. And maybe you guys have heard this advice, but I actually was thinking about it and just kind of how ironic this advice was. But one of the things I've heard before was this. They said, if you're ever gonna do work in your house, do the work right away. Because they say the longer you live in the house, the less inclined you are to do the work. You guys have heard this before? 
And I was thinking about it, and I realized how ironic that advice was. Because if you understand the heart behind the advice, you want to know what it's saying? It's saying, you better do the work right away, because the longer you live in the house, you'll begin to realize, my life is totally fine, whether I have granite or laminate. My life won't change. <laughs> but we fall into these temptations many times that say, if I just have new cabinets, then my life will be better. If I could just knock out this wall, then my life will be better. It's funny, I just cranked my jeans up there. Oh. Anyone, anyone watch HGTV? We were watching last night. Shout out to the Mars farm. Um, you know that show, Denise? Come on, somebody. Um, but one of the words they use in HGTV a lot of times when it comes to the home is like, you need a sanctuary. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I got to build you a sanctuary. Listen, man, a home is an amazing place. It's a blessing and it's a gift from God, but it's not the ultimate thing. And when we take these things that I believe can be gifts from God and make them ultimate, ultimately, we will end up unhappy. There's a book written by a psychologist named Jonathan Hyde, and uh, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Now, this isn't a Christian guy, just someone that does research. He's actually a secular man. Um, but he came to this conclusion. And in this study he found, he said that there is a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. In other words... One person's wealth did not necessarily equate to their contentment. Now, in a hedonistic culture, one that says pleasure is the ultimate good, then if you take two and two together, you would think then that those who have more pleasurable things would ultimately be those who are happiness, happiest. But in this study, he found, again, there wasn't a strong correlation between wealth and contentment. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wealth. But there wasn't this correlation. Even more so, this was interesting. He said there's this trend that the more prosperous society becomes, the more common depression is. Did you guys get that? The more wealthy societies become, the more depression increases. It's really weird. Why does this happen? I think it's just because we have a tendency to turn good things into God things. And when we turn good things into God things, ultimately we will be left feeling unsatisfied. There is nothing wrong with having a boyfriend, but a boyfriend is not the hole in your heart that you're missing. Come on, somebody. You see, when we look at Solomon's list, maybe outside of like the slaves and the concubines, there's nothing inherently wrong with what he says. Nothing wrong with trying to build houses and agriculture and all of these things. The biggest issue was that Solomon was looking to these things in order to bring his life satisfaction. And when he dove into those things, his conclusion was pretty simple. It's meaningless. This isn't giving me that which I'm looking for. And I just have this thought that when we take the good things of God and turn them into ultimate things... Our life will be disordered, and ultimately we will be unsatisfied. And I just wonder in our culture today, I wonder in our churches today, how many of us are living disordered lives? Because you can go to the right places 
And you can do the right things, but that doesn't mean that my life is in order. And what I think happens is that for a lot of people, we have this dissatisfaction because we know ultimately there's something in my life missing. Now, a lot of times in church, we try to paint like the non-Christian in this like super bad light. It's like, you know, because they don't follow Jesus, like they're, hor- they're, they're, they're miserable. Your neighbor hates their life, just know that. <laughs> that's not always how it is. How I think most of us live is what I would call with a, with a, with a low level of dissatisfaction. It's this low level of, now some people it's overwhelming, but I think most of it's a low level of dissatisfaction. And how that manifests itself is that this person is always looking for the next thing. If I can just finish my degree, then I'll be good. If I can just get through September, then October will be better. If I can just leave Alberta and travel, then my life will be, if I can, if I can just get out of this relationship. But what few people realize that all of these things are surface solutions until we ultimately can learn how to reorder our loves and reorder our life. And so what happens is that because our lives are disordered, a disordered life leads to disordered solutions. Most people have this low level of dissatisfaction, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. Now, what's funny is that when you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon kind of goes through the ringer, trying, to, trying different things. Chapter one, he tries wisdom. Chapter two, he tries hedonism, just all of these things, but all of them lead to dissatisfaction. Now, what I kind of want to go through is I want to go through four types of people. Because I think there are four types of people that walk around this world looking for satisfaction, but looking for it in the wrong way. So, can I go through this list? Maybe we'll find ourselves on this list. Who knows? So, number one, uh, we have the hedonist. Now, again, we just did a deep dive into this. But for some people, like, they can get all the stuff and not feel satisfaction. But for a lot of people, it's like, you know what? The issue must just be, I don't have enough, right? I only have four properties. If I have eight, then I'll feel better. If I have a faster car, if I have a bigger RV, whatever it is, right? And so for the hedonists, what do they do with their dissatisfaction? More. It's more, it's more, it's more, it's more. What do I do when I don't find pleasure? I just double down. And what happens is that ultimately, I believe that this leaves us in this endless cycle of chasing. So, first person we see, the disordered solution is hedonism. I just look for more. Second person, what is the disordered solution for their disordered life? I call this person the cynic. Now, the cynical person is kind of where Solomon gets to in this book, right? Where, like, to be cynical means I question, right? Like, for him, he says, everything is meaningless. Um, do you guys know a cynical person? Are you guys a cynical person? <laughs> Not after today. Come on, somebody. So look at this. I'll show you what, what cynicism looks like in Solomon's life. Ecclesiastes 2.17, he says, so I hated life 
because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless, a chasing after the wing. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun. But Solomon, aren't you going to leave your kingdom to your kids? He's like, yeah, I have to leave them to someone who comes after me. And who knows whether my kid's going to be an idiot. That's what he's saying. He's like, yet they will control over the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Now, what Solomon is doing is instead of leaning into this dissatisfaction looking higher, he leans into cynicism. And this is where some of us are today. Instead of trying to figure out what's wrong, we just get really cynical. And we say, ooh, man, I think it's just the government. If their policies were a little bit better, if Trudeau was still married, was that, was that too soon? Oh. <laughs> hey, we gotta pray for we gotta pray for our prime minister. Um, but we're cynical. Uh, there's an author, pastor named John Mark Comer, um, and he has this theory. Um, he calls it like compound interest, but with humans. So if you guys know how compound interest works with money, is that like. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, not a whole lot of returns, not a whole lot of returns, but then one day, like when you're 65, like you get a bunch of money. That's, that's how compound interest works. And so, <laughs> slightly, um, you gotta invest. But he talks about, in humans, he says, it kind of works the same way. And so he says, with elderly people, he's like, you'll notice something. He's like, elderly people are one of two things. He's like, they're the nicest people you've ever met in your entire life. He's like, or they're the worst people you've ever met in your entire life. You guys been to a nursing home before? Because what he says, he says, a life of joy and happiness over time, it compounds. Into one day, I'm filled with joy and happiness. But he says, cynicism over time, it compounds. And at the start, it's just like, oh, the weather sucks. Oh, Alberta sucks. But when I'm older and it's compounded for years after years, I'm a cynical person. I don't trust people. I don't believe in good. I don't believe in good outcomes. And ultimately what cynicism is, is that it actually gives us, I believe, a low-level dopamine hit that can help with our dissatisfaction. So instead of leaning into the fact that maybe my life is out of order, I just become really cynical. You guys ever been in a cynical room before where one person starts and then the next person starts and then the next person starts and you're like, what happened? It's because each person is giving themselves a low level of dopamine hurt. They're the worst. No, they're the worst. No, listen to this. It's cynical. It's cynical. It's cynical. And what happens is over time, we don't trust in people. We don't trust in things. And ultimately, we live a life devoid of true pleasure and true happiness. Solomon is cynical. Number three, uh, we have the stoic. Now, Stoicism is an ancient philosophy, but it's kind of making a comeback today. And what Stoicism is in, in you know, its purest form is this idea. Hello. We, we, we good? Let's give it up for Prince in the back. I think I just had like EKG there or something. Hello. Okay, where was I? Uh, stoicism. The ancients didn't like that I was talking about it. But um, 
the idea of stoicism is this idea that I'm not going to let my emotions control me. So what happens uh, for a lot of people, when they, when they feel this low level of dissatisfaction, they say to themselves, well, the issue just must be my emotions. I'm too emotional. I'm too invested. I'm too attached. I'm too attached to people. They always let me down. I'm too attached to church. It always lets me down. I'm just going to no longer let my emotions control me. I'm going to detach. I'm going to stone face it. And so the stoic goes through life trying their very best not to feel emotions, not to experience pain. But ultimately, the question is this, can I really detach from my emotions? We as emotional, can we really detach? But for some of us, we try. I don't put my heart into things because I don't want to let people down. I, want to let, I don't want to let myself down. But ultimately, this is a disordered solution that I believe does not give us what we're looking for. The last person is this. Um, I'm going to call them the legalist. You could also call them um, the altruistic person. But this is the person that says, you know what? I've done the life all about me. Hasn't got me anywhere. So what what I have to do is I have to serve. Just have to serve. And these people, what they do, because of that low level of dissatisfaction, they say, my life has to be about other people. I have to volunteer at the food bank. I have to volunteer here. You have to recycle. I recycle. If you don't recycle, you're going to hell. Come on, somebody. Like, <laughs> you guys haven't met a real recycler before. Um, <laughs> shocking, I guess. <laughs> but the legalist ultimately goes the opposite way. Right? That says, you know what, I've, I've lived the selfish life, so ultimately I'm going to find satisfaction by being as unselfish as possible. I'm going to serve, I'm going to give, I'm going to do everything I can in order that I'm not going to be selfish. But the issue with the legalists is they don't understand that all that they are doing is rooted in their own self-interest of trying to feel better about themselves. And what they don't realize is ultimately they're in the same place. It's all about me. And I believe if we're being honest, perhaps if we're in the room today, all of us have been in certain places, certain seasons where we've gone through these things. But what I want to say today is I believe the ultimate solution is not found in any of those four things. I believe the ultimate solution is simply found out of reordering our love. Matthew 22, again, we're back here. Teacher, What's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The ultimate solution, listen to this, church, for that low level of dissatisfaction is to reorder our love. We have to begin to love God first and foremost. Now, there's one issue. Because I wish I could just say, love God, go home. There's only one issue. We as humans, we don't generally generate love by an act of will. I don't generally just will myself to love something. Most of the time, love is begotten from love. Now, the good news about Jesus and the good news about God when he instructs us to love him It is not a love that is without something behind it. 1 John chapter 4, 
says this. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we may live through him. Look at this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the essence of love is not that we try and will ourselves to love God. It is in the belief and the understanding that God first loved us. You need to understand this. The cross of Jesus flips everything. The cross flips everything. The Bible says in another place, it says very rarely will someone die for a good man. Though he might. But Christ showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So the message that reorientates our life is this. It is not that I need to love God more. I need to will myself to do it. It is that there is a God who loved you so much that he sought to find you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of running away, God sent his son to say, this is how much I care about you. This is how much I love you. Listen, the reason you don't need to chase things to give you worth, the reason you don't need to chase money, status, homes, cars, new jobs, relationships, to make it seem like you are worth something is because the God in heaven who created everything says that you are worth it. He says that you are valuable. He says that you are loved. He says that you are more than enough. I don't need to chase pleasure because there is a God that has already said, I delight in you. The cynic. The cynic says there could be no good. What do you mean God? Everyone lets me down. But the cross says, no, 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 listen, 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 listen. It's not about you. Not about anything that you've done. I'm going to do it for you. And he dies. That we can see what love is. For the stoic, there's a joy that comes when you realize that you are loved and accepted beyond belief. For the legalist, here's the beauty. I don't have to do anything <clears throat> to be worth it. I don't have to do anything to be valuable. I'm worth it because Jesus says so. And so all of these disordered solutions ultimately find their order in the cross, in the love of Jesus. And so today what I want to do is this. I want to make an appeal. Can we just stand for a second, church? If you're here today and you feel like you've been chasing the wrong things, you feel like you've been going in the wrong directions, I want to let you know I want to speak something over you. There is a God that loves you beyond belief, beyond comprehension, that sends his son to die for you. The reason we love is because he first loved us. You are deeply loved. You are valuable. You don't have to do a thing. You are a child. 
So right now, every head bow, every eye closed. If you're in this place and you just feel, man, I've had some disordered love in my life. I've been searching in the wrong places. You just want to take a step today to begin to reorder. And I know that love doesn't usually happen in one moment, but maybe there's a nudge right now, just a nudge to say, my life is out of order and I would just love prayer. If that's you today, every head bowed, every eye closed, could you just show me your hand? I would love to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, you see the disorder of our hearts and of our loves. You are the solution. You are the one that we've been looking for. And so God, I just pray that in this moment, we can begin to take the steps to reorder our love and to ultimately reorder our life. I just thank you that you sent your son to die for us. I just thank you, Jesus, that you have shown us what true love is. Not that we love you, but that you loved us first. If you're in this place today and you just want to accept that love, maybe you've never done it before, one more time, can you show me your hand? I would love to pray for you. Father, there are hearts that are searching for your love. So I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, fill them. Fill them in this place with your love. May they know and see themselves how you see them. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's clap our hands. Thanks for taking the time to listen to that message. If you want more information or made a decision to follow Jesus, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We would love to connect with you. Until next time, take care.